The number of cancer survivors in the United States is predicted to reach 26 million by 2040. And within that group, the population of long-term survivors with metastatic cancer is also growing. Guidelines related to the treatment of cancer survivors have generally left out issues specific to metastatic cancer survivors, and their needs haven't really been well studied. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Terry Longbaum, Chief Administrative Officer at the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center, and Tom Smith, a medical oncologist and the Director of Palliative Medicine at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Dr. Smith and Ms. Legbaum have co-authored a perspective article about studying and caring for people living with metastatic cancer. Ms. Langbaum, Dr. Smith, as you write in your perspective article, you're both metastatic cancer survivors who are living with life-threatening side effects from your treatment. So can you start by telling us a bit about your own experiences with cancer and the care that you've received, perhaps starting with you, Terry? Yes, I'm happy to. My original cancer diagnosis was over 37 years ago with Hodgkin's disease. And at that time, I was very relieved to learn that I had Hodgkin's because I knew that Hodgkin's was a curable cancer. What I didn't understand at that time was that the treatments that were given for Hodgkin's disease 37 years ago very often led to late effects, including secondary cancers. And so I'm now dealing with my third treatment-related cancer from that original diagnosis. Having said that, I feel nothing but very fortunate to be here today to be having this discussion. And I think that this is a very important discussion about metastatic survivorship because my previous cancer diagnoses were curable. This cancer diagnosis was not, and I knew it from the time I got the call. And so I think this is a very different situation for me than the other cancer treatments. And Tom? My situation is different. I'm dealing with recurrent prostate cancer. I was a healthy ultramarathon runner at age 65 when my PSA continued to rise, so I had a biopsy which showed prostate cancer, Gleason's 3 plus 4, and perineural invasion. I went on to have a radical prostatectomy here by an expert. Survived that quite well, but within 15 months, my PSA had started to rise again. So I subsequently underwent six months of luprolide injections to drop my testosterone to zero along with bicalutamide pills to do the same, and eight weeks of radiation therapy. Radiation therapy I tolerated like a piece of cake, at least initially. As soon as my testosterone dropped, I began to have pretty significant problems. I developed drenching night sweats every 45 minutes, starting about 2.30 in the morning, lasting till the middle of the day. I developed complete insomnia complicated by the drenching night sweats. I immediately started losing muscle mass, losing centimeters off my puny little forearms and biceps to begin with, and it really impacted my running, which had, I think, kept me sane through many of the years, so that my time in the marathon went from four hours to six and a half hours pretty immediately after treatment. I actually tolerated the the whole therapy pretty well, but in March, I had a really significant TIA. I was at the O's game when I began seeing two pitchers on the mound, dropped my French fries from my left side, and my left side got weak and my speech got garbled. I was having a transient ischemic attack. It turns out that luprolide apparently does raise the risk of that pretty substantially. Luckily, that all cleared. But between that and all these other not being able to sleep, drenching night sweats, drenching hot flashes, etc., I got really, really depressed. And I ended up actually admitting myself to the hospital so I didn't commit suicide and joined the ranks of Kate Spade and Chester Bennington and Anthony Bourdain in June of this year. 
But that really got much better almost immediately as soon as I came off the Cymbalta that I was on and went on a different antidepressant. And since I'd had depression 35 years ago, I knew something about it. But having been depression-free for 35 years, I was surprised to learn that androgen deprivation therapy raises the relative risk of depression by 41%. I wish I'd had a little bit more forewarning about that. I'm finally on the path to recovery, and my PSA is still undetectable, and my muscle mass is getting back to normal. I also developed really a significant respiratory problem with restrictive lung disease numbers and FEV1 and total lung capacity and diffusing capacity down in the 50 to 50% range. We couldn't find any other cause for that, so we attributed it just to the androgen deprivation and really profound muscle weakness that I was experiencing. That's also getting somewhat better, but if I appear breathless on the phone, it's because of that. So given stories like those, and given the fact that one of them goes back 37 years, why do you think guidelines and research on cancer survivorship haven't been looking much at long-term survivors with metastatic cancer? So I think one of the issues related to cancer survivorship guidelines, which have been focused on survivors post-treatment, is an acceptance of the definition of survivorship. You can define survivorship as any patient who has undergone a diagnosis of cancer and treatment for that cancer. They're survivors from the moment of that diagnosis forward. Or you can look at survivorship as the period from the time the cancer treatment is finished. And I think that we're a little bit schizophrenic about how we actually define survivorship. I actually sit on the NCCN guideline panel for survivorship, and we have never addressed the issues of metastatic survivors on that guideline panel, which I brought up at the last meeting, and hopefully we will treat that differently going forward. Let me just add to that. There's really only been one person I know, a nurse here, Lily Shockney, who's held metastatic cancer couples retreats and has done some work trying to figure out what's helpful. And as a breast oncologist, we have concentrated so much in the survivorship field for getting people back to normal once we've beaten them up with chemo, radiation, and surgery, and now with immunotherapy and vaccine treatments. We haven't really concentrated on, well, how do you coexist with slowly growing prostate cancer? How do you coexist with slowly growing sarcoma? How do you coexist with breast cancer? Should you still get heart disease screening, for instance? I read a report yesterday that 50% of CAT scans done for cancer actually show coronary artery calcifications. There's a significant risk factor for heart disease, but most of the time that isn't even remarked upon in the CT report because we're so concentrated on the cancer. As an oncologist, I understand that, but I also think we can start to look at what the needs of people like Terry and myself are and how to get us to lead as reasonably normal life as we can for whatever amount of time we have. So in that regard, what kinds of factors should clinicians consider when they're caring for patients who are living with metastatic cancer? How are those patients' needs different from the needs of other people with chronic illnesses? I think the first thing I would tell clinicians is don't be afraid to bring things up. There is absolutely nothing that you can discuss with us that we haven't been thinking about at 2 o'clock laying awake in the middle of the night. I, for instance, would really like some good numbers about my prognosis. What's the chance of it coming back at six years? What's the chance of it coming back at 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Just mostly for peace of mind if it's good and if it's not good to plan as well. It's been hard pinning my oncology team down for those actual numbers. And I actually found the most help from a prostate cancer website run by Memorial Sloan Kettering. 
or I could look up and see that after the treatment I've undergone, I've got an 18 out of 100 chance of it coming back in the next six years. So I think just don't be afraid to bring things up. The second is really ask, how are you coping with the illness? I can count on just a few times the number of times I've been asked, well, how are you actually coping with this? What's interfering with normal function? How can we make it better? Terry? I think that um, one of the things that is confusing for people with metastatic disease today, and we're in an unprecedented time, we're bombarded with these ads on television about miracle drugs, drugs that are treating cancers that people would have died from within months and are now living for years on these new treatments. The fact is that these treatments work in a small percentage of patients, and they work for a small period of time. But I think that patients who are living with this are very confused. Should we be expecting that our tumor be looked at in a way that we will know if we have the mutations for the next new drug that's going to be going on to trial at our institution or around the country? Is there a way that we can know that there's nothing out there that's going to treat our cancer? I think a lot of the advertising by the drug companies gives the false impression that some of these new drugs are really the answer to someone's prayers. And in many situations, they're not. And yet, in the back of our minds, is there hope out there? I also think it's very difficult, and I know it is for my oncologist, who's an absolutely wonderful person, to say to me, I have nothing to offer you in terms of treatment. I just think it's a really difficult conversation still. And as a patient, I really appreciate honesty. I have planning to do. And I want to know how long, and no one can tell me that. And I want to know how, and no one can tell me that. But it's okay for me to hear the words, we don't have treatment for you. I went on a drug recently that when I went to pick it up at the pharmacy, the person in the pharmacy told me that the drug cost $13,000 for the month. And I had looked at the literature, and I knew that that drug provides progression-free survival on the drug, 4.6 months, and on a placebo of 1.6 months. And I stood there for 20 minutes trying to decide whether I should fill that prescription or not. Now, I didn't have to pay the $13,000, but our healthcare system does, and I really feel some responsibility for what we've done to the healthcare system in the U.S. today. I also know that there are many, many people in my situation, and are we going to treat everyone with these drugs that provide a few months of additional survival at a very, very high cost to society. You're both talking about, to some extent, the problem of the loss of control. How should clinicians involve patients in determining the plans for their care? What kind of conversations should they be having? I think it's really wonderful to include the patient in decisions about what the surveillance and follow-up visits will be like when you get to a point where there is not active treatment any longer. I think a lot of us fear that we're going to be abandoned when we're not being treated. And so working together with the oncologist to decide how often you're going to be seen, who you're going to call when you have symptoms, whether or not you should be referred to palliative care, whether or not you should be referred to hospice. These are all conversations that are very fair to have with a patient. I know they're difficult conversations, but the patients really deserve to have that little bit of control about helping to make the decisions about what that schedule looks like and about when those further referrals take place. There's very little control in any of this. Some of the things we can control are who we tell about our disease and our situation, when we do that, 
And it really changes relationships when people know that you have an incurable disease. I didn't realize it until I lived in it, but it's very apparent to me that people treat you differently. And most of us really would just want to live life and have life as normal as possible for whatever the remaining time is. I was lucky, I'm still lucky, that I have a really good team taking care of me here too. And my radiation therapist really involved me in the decisions. He asked me, what's the thing that you're most concerned about with prostate cancer? And I told him. In fact, my urologist had called me to tell me my PSA was up right when I was in the middle of clinic. And the very next person I was seeing was a man my age who was dying of painful bone metastases. Probably not the best thing to do to somebody in the middle of the clinic and tell them the cancer's returned. But my radiation therapist asked me, well, what's the thing that concerns you the most? And I said, well, really dying with painful bone metastases because that's what I see as a palliative care physician, as an oncologist. And so he was very clear. He said, I'm probably not going to increase your cure rate, but we can increase the length of time you'll have before you have bone metastases. And that helped me frame my decision to go ahead with hormonal therapy, and radiation. On the research side, what kinds of studies would you like to see related to care for metastatic cancer survivors? What are the most pressing questions that need to be addressed? I think helping people adapt psychologically to their new existence would be really helpful. I'm particularly interested in Harvey Chochinov's dignity therapy and William Breitbart's meaning-centered psychotherapy. And I probably would have benefited from having those done with me early in the diagnosis before I started experiencing all these really unique and special side effects. I think it might have helped me explore how I was dealing with my change in my body image, my change in who I was, my change in who my friends were because I really can't go out and run 50 miles anymore. It might have made the transition easier for me and my family. The other thing is maybe we should be thinking as an oncology society and the NCCN about making sure that people do or don't get other types of screening. I mean, should I still be getting my heart checked? Should I still be getting regular colonoscopies, all those sorts of things? The answer is probably yes, because there's a good chance I'll be alive and well five, six years from now. But for Terry and for others who are dealing with more imminent thoughts of death, we really should be thinking about how to modify the existing guidelines for them. And Terry, what do you see as the most pressing questions that should be addressed? I think one of the important issues would be more at patient-reported outcomes, especially on side effects of treatment. Some of the treatments that we use in the palliative setting uh, cause more harm than good, and I'm not sure that we really ask or listen to the patients well enough. When a patient walks into an exam room and is asked about a side effect, a lot goes on in your mind about being a good patient, about pleasing the doctor, about cooperation. And I think that if you were to ask patients in a questionnaire that they can answer by themselves without the doctor in the room, the answers are going to look different than they look in a one-on-one conversation between the provider and the patient. So I think that we could look more closely at what patients in palliative mode have to say about treatments that are offered. And also, I think it's very important to study the impact of groups of patients who are in the same situation. And we saw this with our metastatic breast cancer patients. When taken away for a weekend and given the opportunity to talk about what they were thinking and feeling, to me, that's much more personalized medicine than what's happening at the genetic level. 
that's really giving the patients the opportunity to express exactly what's in their hearts and their minds as they face their mortality. And it's so rare to be given that opportunity. There's certainly nothing like it out there for me in my situation. And I think that if we thought about it a little bit, it's not that expensive and we probably could create programming around metastatic survivorship that would be extremely beneficial from a psychosocial aspect. Steve, if I can add to that, for people who don't have access to support groups, online communities can be really helpful. I found the US2 prostate cancer group called Inspire really helpful because I could ask questions that I either didn't feel comfortable asking my team here or hadn't really gotten the feeling that the team was had the answers or was sometimes that interested. Things, for, in my instance, like what happens when your penis begins to shrink? What happens when your penis skin gets so soft because you don't have any testosterone? And what have other people done for hot flashes? What have other people done for rectal irritation that comes on? How have other people coped pretty well? And I found other people who were having very, very similar experiences to mine with androgen deprivation therapy that made me feel that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't a complainer, that I wasn't somehow being a good patient. So just a referral can be really helpful. I think another really important point is that we know that caregiving for a loved one who has cancer is extremely stressful on the family. And no one studied what happens when you're a caregiver for three or four or five or seven or 10 years for someone who's pretty high maintenance, who's got a lot of medical issues related to their cancer diagnosis that are not going to go away. And we know what the end is going to be. And we haven't studied that group at all. And I think it's a very important group to be looking at. Finally, what's come as the biggest surprise to you about day-to-day life as a person with metastatic cancer? What are clinicians not seeing that would help them inform their treatment of patients with metastatic cancer? I think that what shocked me the most is that I am not fearful. I am grateful for every single day that I feel well. And I wouldn't have pictured myself in this situation, but here I am. And I think the physicians are so frightened to tell us that there's nothing that they can do that's going to cure the cancer. And yet, that's not the part that gives me the angst. The part that gives me the angst is, are you going to be with me until the end? Are you going to make sure that I'm comfortable until the end? That part scares me more than the fact that I have to give up years of life. I just feel grateful for the years that I've had. And I think, for me, that was very surprising. I'm grateful too. I'm grateful for all the good days and years that you've had and hope for many more. And I'm thankful that I'm doing better now. I think one of the things that has been so frustrating for me has been the pervasive fatigue. I mean, even needing two naps a day when I was a person who would go forever with on four to five hours of sleep before all this happened. And just the adjustments at work, particularly with the depression, that it would be all right if I had a stroke, but if I had depression, that would suddenly raise red flags at work in a way that physical illnesses don't. It's also something that I realized in my life as a breast cancer doctor that once you're diagnosed with a serious illness like this, you really can find where you are so that you can maintain your insurance. I mean, I wouldn't ever consider taking another job or starting another program just because I finally figured out how to make most of the insurance things work reasonably well for me, and I don't want to rock any boats. But I think the gratefulness is really something and should be celebrated. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Terry.